EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, it's about that time once again to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero. And coming to us from the EMS World Tour from Oklahoma, our good friend Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh, man, same same stuff, different day. I'm having a good time here at the uh, Oklahoma EMT Association's Medic Update in Norman. Um, they, they put on a good conference, made made me and Nancy feel welcome. So I'm having a blast, man. So how many how many conferences do you speak at a year on average? Oy, uh it varies anywhere from twelve to fifteen. Um, oh, Jesus. Uh, now I do you know separate uh, seminars for you know private seminars for agencies and stuff above and beyond that. But you know as far as EMS conferences go, anywhere from twelve to fifteen. Some days I'll some years I'll do as many as eighteen. Sometimes some years I'll only do ten or so. So oh my gosh, we're gonna have to get EMS one to get you a private jet. Yeah, man, uh, Gulfstream, Gulfstream 5 would be fine. It, yeah, I'm writing that down right now, because yeah. we're going to have the budget year. They're going to ask what we need for the show, yeah. right? I think look, that's... Look, tell tell Greg that I'll I'll cut, I'll cut throw him a bone. doesn't have to be a Gulfstream. A used Lear will be fine with me. Okay. I'm an easy guy to please. I'm writing that down. I mean, I don't think it's too much to ask, right? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. All right, I'll let I'll you know how that works out. I still have my Eddie Award. They, they still have my award in their trophy case. I haven't even gotten a lay, to lay my hands on it. The least I can do is get a free Learjet. I okay. think I think that's fair. I don't think it's too much to ask. I, I wrote it down, so I'll cover it with them. But so got we got uh, Pinnacle was this week, and hopefully we'll get somebody yeah. on to talk about what happened down there at Pinnacle. But uh, EMS World is coming up in October. You going down there, Nashville, no, Tennessee? Not be able to make the EMS World in October. Man, you just never go to those things, do you? Well, no, I, I go to EMS World. Um, I, I went last year. Um, I just won't be able to make it this October. I got too many things going on in October. Plus my my shooting weekend, my my battery recharging with my with my gun nut tribe is in October, and I'm not going to miss that. So yeah, I like the term gun nut because that's about sums it up. But uh, Kelly, let's go ahead and talk about uh, a couple weeks ago. I think it was around the. 20th or so uh, i guess maybe it wasn't a couple weeks i guess it was just six days ago there was yeah. a new study that came out that talked about epinephrine in the pre-hospital setting i'm going to kick it to mm-hmm. you and let you kind of set it up for the listeners yeah well we've known and suspected for some time that that uh the effects of epinephrine uh in cardiac arrest uh can be detrimental uh and it's real good at uh temporarily resuscitating a corpse but uh it may not be good for long-term outcomes. And and we've had uh, a number of studies that demonstrate that, but they weren't either uh, sufficiently powered to really address the issue um, 
uh, or the questions that were asking in those studies were slightly different than, than the current trial. There was one in Japan. There was one by Dr. Jacobs in the United States that had some enrollment issues. It was, had it, had it not been halted, probably would have been a good trial. But the first large-scale multi-center randomized control trial on the effectiveness of epinephrine uh, in cardiac arrest at uh, achieving survival to hospital discharge and survival to hospital discharge neurologically intact was just completed in London. It's called the Paramedic 2 trial. Uh, it was held at five different EMS agencies in uh, in the United Kingdom uh, over the last ooh, three years or so, and they just published their results. And uh, it don't look good for epinephrine, guys. <laughs> Does yeah. not look good at all. Yeah, and that's one of the things that was really, uh, really surprising because w there's been a lot of drugs that have kind of come in and out of the formulary, and mm -hmm. it seems that epinephrine, it seems that lidocaine. Remember back in the day, we were even given D50 in oh. uh, as a first line drug when it came to, uh, and I thought that made sense when you think about the Krebs cycle and so on and so forth, yeah. and is there any energy that's going on? And I thought that made real sense, but we've taken a lot of drugs that have gone through the formulary. Epinephrine and lidocaine seem to be the ones that have stayed you know pretty consistent but you know you and i have talked about this for a very long time there's a lot of drugs that we have in our formulary that we give to patients that we just suspect should work when it comes to cardiac arrest respiratory arrest things like that and, and there is there is even no real evidence that lidocaine does anything either so now you know from this standpoint it really kind of puts us into almost a pickle now because we have uh, uh, you know this study that you mentioned it was published by the new england journal of medicine i mean this isn't a throwdown magazine and they're really kind of letting us know that what we've been doing and what we've been doing for years you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work. And I, I really yeah. want to kind of comment on your article because you wrote an article that uh, came out this week, epinephrine and the paramedic two trial. Is it time to pull our starting pitcher? And uh, maybe just give us a little overview about that because, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, why are we still doing this if we know it doesn't work? Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the, one of the big criticisms of advanced cardiac life support over recent years is how it's become so oversimplified and it's basically been CPR defibrillation plus epinephrine. Um, and, and people look and, and they think that ACLS doesn't have merit anymore. And I tend to agree with that. However, uh, the reason it's getting simpler is because finally American Heart Association has started to really focus on evidence-based medicine and change what isn't working. And as it turns out, it's not their fault, but as it turns out, uh, we ain't got much evidence that shows that ALS in cardiac arrest works. Um, and, and that evidence has been building for quite some time now. And, and our, our resuscitation guidelines merely reflect the fact that BLS uh, has been proven time and time again to be the major factor in the success of resuscitation. And all the ALS procedures we do are not proven or, or maybe, in fact, uh, harmful. So, you know, first we had the uh, arrest trial looking at amiodarone versus placebo. Uh, and amiodarone was a good deal more uh, effective than placebo at, uh, you know, ROSC in, right. in B-field arrest. Right, right. And then the, the, the lidocaine defender said, well, you know, but you didn't compare it to lidocaine. Sure, it's going to be better than a bolus of sterile water compared to lidocaine. Well, then amiodarone beat the pants off of lidocaine and placebo in the ALIVE trial. 
But what it still didn't do was save lives. It did not improve survival to hospital discharge. So what I would tell people, uh, amiodarone is great at temporarily resuscitating a corpse uh, that will run up a huge bill in the ICU and then die anyway. Um, and it took a while for American Heart and, and the ILCOR guidelines to catch up and say, you know, well, maybe routine administration of antiarrhythmics and VFIB-REST is probably the evidence supporting it is weak and uh, maybe it's acceptable to take an individual problem-solving approach and, and not administer antiarrhythmics routinely at all. Um, and, you know, and, of course, we had opals in uh, 2004 that yeah, – Yeah, but that was really more an ALS-BLS study. Yeah, but that's the thing. What What is ALS about cardiac arrest? Right. Vascular access. Well, not anymore. I mean, nothing anymore. I mean, intubation well, is really – anymore. But, you know, but 2004, you know, basically – hammered home in opals that that bls with defibrillation is just as good uh as als at least for cardiac arrest other mm -hmm. subsets it showed that als was superior so it's it's like that uh, the reason i titled my, my article uh is it time to pull our starting picture you know if epinephrine is the one the drug that's hung around through all those changes it's our tried and true starting picture and we're hoping that it'll pull us out of the the uh, hole we're in right. uh, and hope that our individual ALS problem solving techniques are going to catch us up against the, the BLS hitters. Well, uh, epinephrine is getting shat, uh, shellacked pretty hard. Right. Uh, it might be time to put in a relief pitcher because it's not proven to be effective anymore. Well, I don't even um, know that there's any relief pictures that we can use, but let's go ahead and just categorize <laughs> this study. We, so you know, we, we trotted vasopressin out to the to the mound for for five years but we didn't test vasopressin vasopressin yeah, was test was tested on animals it wasn't even yeah, tested on people it was a bit of a wild pitcher too so uh he wasn't real effective we had to take him out of the game as well wild thing you make my heart sing so anyway just for the people that that uh, and we'll go ahead and put the study uh in the uh we'll put a couple of the links in the show notes but the paramedic two study uh, as kelly mentioned it was a large-scale multi-center randomized control trial it was conducted in five different EMS agencies in the United Kingdom, and the study randomized about 8,000 patients of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and this was after the initial CPR and defibrillation. They were put into two mm -hmm. groups, epinephrine, one milligram, one in 10,000 solution every three to five minutes, plus the standard uh, resuscitation guidelines, and then a placebo of 0.9% saline, plus, of course, the resuscitation guidelines. If we look at that and break that down, the epinephrine arm uh, enrolled about 4,000 patients, while the placebo arm uh, was about uh, 3,999. Yeah, so almost the same. One was 4,015, one was 4,000. Yeah. They did exclude some patients, pregnant patients, patients under 16, cardiac arrest from anaphylaxis or asthma, uh, administration of epinephrine before arrival of the trial-trained paramedic, and any traumatic cardiac arrest from that yeah, agency. One agency excluded traumatic arrest from their, which from I their think is very death. smart because that's yeah. that's you know yeah. what I mean. Because so that's other people are not dying from under epinephrine, right. under epinephrineization. <laughs> They're dying right. from something other than advanced cardiac uh, life support is going to fix. Right. You know, and the but, and the results. Go ahead and share the results with the listeners, well, Kelly. Uh, you know, first of all, the overall survival rates uh, in this study at first glance are surprisingly low, three uh, percent roughly. You know, where in the United States, survival of cardiac arrest is hovers, what, 7.8, almost 8%, uh, maybe as high as 10%, depending on where you, you look. Um, the survival rate here was very low. But 
615 patients were excluded from the trial because they got ROSC before the study drug could be administered from CPR and defibrillation. And, you know, historically, those are patients more likely to survive neurologically intact anyway. The patients you get back almost immediately. So that probably accounts for, you know, their selection bias. Uh, we took the sicker patients, therefore, uh, in this study, therefore, uh, the survival rates are not going to be as good. But there were a couple of, uh, there was one primary outcome that they were measuring. Um, did these people survive 30 days uh, uh, after discharge? They also looked at um, uh, levels of neurological impairment and ROSC rates. Uh, those were the secondary uh, outcomes that it was, that was uh, measuring. Uh, and as it turns out, well, you know, it confirmed what we thought. Epinephrine is great at temporarily restoring a pulse. Right. What it's great at is create is restoring a viable life to most patients. Because even though significantly more of the uh, patients in the epinephrine arm had ROSC, um, like 23% of patients in the epinephrine arm uh, had ROSC versus 8% in the placebo arm, um, there's more to life than just getting a pulse back temporarily. Right. And, and the interesting things in the study is the study authors, you know, polled patients and, and wanted to and asked them, what is a meaningful outcome to you? And almost overwhelmingly, these people said, uh, I would rather be dead than significantly brain damaged. Right. And I think uh, that one of, the, one of the things that was really interesting and that you put in your article is you talk about the three phases of cardiac arrest. I'm so glad you did that because a lot of people don't categorize it this way. And, you know, I haven't seen this in years. And, and uh, you adding this was really awesome that the uh, three phases of cardiac arrest, electrical in zero to five minutes, circulatory in six to 20 minutes, metabolic greater than 20 minutes. Now, my challenge with this whole study is the fact that the the mean time interval between the arrest and the administration of the drug was 21 minutes. Yeah. So I don't know that if we if we right. So I don't know that if we think about the success of this if it was really the drug or it didn't make a difference, how do you give a patient after, you know, 20 minutes of downtime a drug to say you know what, we may have gotten a pulse back, but we're not going to go ahead and have any uh, neurological uh, um, uh, recovery. Recover, yeah. yeah. So I don't know that, you know, we, we look at this, and I would have been more apt to say that this was correct if we were in a, in a range to know that the drug was on board as quickly as practical, secondary mm -hmm. to, you know, CPR that has been conducted because our dispatch center, um, you know, is given CPR instructions so they went down, we're given CPR, we get there in four minutes and 50, or the, the first responders are there in four minutes and 59 seconds, we're there in eight minutes and 59 seconds. I would like to see that study. I don't yeah. know how much we can hang our hat on the efficacy of epinephrine knowing that they were well into the metabolic phase of cardiac arrest yeah. before they gave the first round medication. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, that's that's... Uh, field for future study. That's, you know, that that's the, the unpleasant reality of scientific study is it often generates as many questions as it answers. Uh, but that's the nature of science. You know, that's our struggle to understand the world we're in. Uh, and that's still the best way, even if it poses more questions. When we get one answer, we get five more questions. Uh, that's why we keep studying. Um, is it plausible that patients uh, 
who get epinephrine when during the circulatory phase, when increased systemic vascular resistance might be more beneficial? Well, I guess. Um, is the increase in SVR and the boost in cerebral perfusion pressure worth the potential uh, shutdown of microcirculation and organs and, and brain neurons? Well, I don't know. That's something we got to study. It is. Uh, it's uh, so so there's more stuff to come but one thing that was clear from this study is that the rates of rosc and and the slightly higher when i say slightly higher 3.2 percent uh survival to uh, uh to discharge 30 day survival compared to uh uh 2.4 percent so you get a 0.8 increase with epinephrine right. at the cost of having much likely much higher incidence of uh, of severe neurological impairment. Now, I don't agree with the the newspaper reports that said you know uh, resuscitation drug proven to to right. cause brain damage. They, it's just they a lack of it, lack of understanding. Yeah, yeah. So, so let the, me ask you this though. Hyperbolic, but you know it's. But, uh, but let's go here, okay? Yeah. So. Um, let me go ahead and read it just like you wrote it. So you are a good paramedic with a lot of years of experience and a clinical <laughs> like educator, just like you wrote it. Good job. No, but really, I mean, you're, you're an experienced paramedic. You know, you've been in the leadership realm. You're an educator. I've been, in a, uh, you know, I'm a paramedic, an educator. I've been in the leadership realm. What does this mean for our organizations now, Kelly? Do we, do we just throw epinephrine out because we're saying that it doesn't work and that's it, we're done? Or uh, what are the next steps based on this study? Well, you know, there, there's a saying that you never want to be an early adopter or the first adopter of, of new technology, and you never want to be the last person to pick it up. So uh, there are going to be some brave and progressive EMS medical directors out there that, that take some pretty bold steps, and we'll learn from their trials and tribulations after they've done this. You certainly don't want to be the last person, uh, the last EMS system to catch up with the rest of the, the country. Um, so... My prediction is, is we're going to start to see, at least in some EMS agencies, um, who start to curtail the use of epinephrine and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. You know, we're, we're medical directors are increasingly emboldened to to deviate from ACLS uh, and ILCOR guidelines if they have what they feel is strong evidence to to uh, point it some other way. I'll, I'll put to example, you know, the uh, AHA never really embraced passive oxygenation and cardiocerebral resuscitation. They right. gave it a kind of a weak, namby-pamby, milk-toast endorsement. Uh, um, well, you know, it's better than killing them. Uh, but they didn't. <laughs> but they didn't say. It. They didn't say that. No, no. But 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 they never really got behind it. But a lot of EMS medical directors felt, so, well, you know, uh, the evidence is pretty strong. We're going to try this. Uh, and they went about it. And, and you're going to see more of that pattern start to emerge. You're going to see some medical directors, even if, if AHA doesn't strongly, uh, you know, make a statement on this or, or significantly change their guidelines early on, you're probably going to see some, some medical directors start to change. What do you do in this uh, place? What do you give it in this place then? I, there's, there's several schools of thought. And once again, I think they're going to take study as well. Uh, I think it's Weingart. I, I, I don't want to, uh, attribute something to, to Dr. Weingart that's not, but I'm pretty sure it's Weingart and because he's a, he's a thought leader on resuscitation and, and got some excellent ideas. He talks about titrating uh, epinephrine infusions to, to arterial pressures. Uh, so 
but that's not something that, that's easily done in the field. So uh, as a resuscitationist in the hospital, it may be a viable thing doing an epinephrine drip titrated to mean arterial pressures uh, during a resuscitation. In the field, we're probably going to have to come up with surrogates for that. Maybe we titrate an epinephrine infusion based upon weight. Um, uh, a, a good buddy of mine, Steve Cole, a, a pretty experienced paramedic and, and EMS educator, uh, said uh, he thinks we ought to do it based on uh, entitled capnography. What kind of uh, titrate? Oh, that's inter- that's interesting. Can- yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, well, you know what it what is it? It's an indirect measure of perfusion. Right. It's one of exactly. the things that we can. Uh, and it's strongly correlated to, you know, lactate levels and 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 predictability of resuscitation outcomes, and and you can you can gauge the effectiveness of chest compressions with capnography. It's certainly plausible that that uh, you can come up with a target number and titrate epinephrine infusions to try to sustain that. So is one milligram the optimum dose? Hell, we may be overdosing these people or underdosing these people. I would probably say overdosing these people. Um, but that's that's a uh, field for future study. As it stands right now, I think in the in the very near future, we're going to start to see epinephrine being used less and less. Uh, uh, if not outright used less overall, we're going to see maybe it restricted to certain types of patients. You know, maybe you've got a patient in cardiac arrest because of uh, obstructive shock where pressor effects might be beneficial. You know, I, I certainly do think that epinephrine, you know, as potent to beta and alpha adrenergic ag- agonist as it is, uh, probably really doesn't have a, a, a place in V-fib and pulses VTAC arrest when the heart's already irritable as hell anyway. Um, but maybe in some types of PEA, you know, uh, it might, might be beneficial. Right. Um, uh, so you, you may think of it that way, but eh, too soon to tell. But yeah, this is I'm just one of that. It's probably time to to pull our starting pitcher and maybe put it put in the closer and and give our guy some rest because he's not doing well right now. Yeah, and this is really kind of putting us into a place where people are going to make decisions that maybe shouldn't be made yet, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see the outcome. But you know, we we used to say this back in the old days, Kelly. It looks like we have a real clinical issue here. Yeah, we do. We do have a clinical issue. But you've heard what Chris and I think. We'd like to hear what you think about it. Tell us what you think. Is this the beginning of the end for epinephrine, or do you think we still have a role for our old standby resuscitation drug? Uh, Give us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Savalero, who gives me a catecholamine dump every time I talk to him. (laughs) This is Kelly Grayson. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.